signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Co- context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. We are uh, going back to the past today, Adam, in more ways than one. The past, something every day I I take great pains in forgetting. (laughs) (laughs) Not today, though. Not today. Um, We are going through a time tunnel to an original series episode about going through a time tunnel. Can you believe it? I love it. Uh, I, I'm excited to see Carl again. Yeah. You know what you don't want to do is is go to a place that that's unfamiliar asking about Carl's tunnel <laughs> and where you can find it. Yeah. They're like, sorry, sir. Uh, we don't have Carl's tunnel here. All we've got is your tunnel. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as big as ever is Carl's tunnel. Yeah. Uh, no matter what time period you're in. I uh, I really like that they use TOS stuff a lot in uh, Disco as a jumping off point, but having just wrapped DS9 and uh, now that we're starting to record Voyager episodes over on our other smash hit Star Trek podcast, The Greatest Generation, I am uh, really jonesing for more stuff about other series in that show, like now that they're in the future, the I feel like the that's possible. The brief is wide open. Yeah, they can do all kinds of stuff about you know, like and and I I'm of more than one frame of mind on this. I really go back and forth because uh, you know, as uh, as our podcast colleague John Hodgman is famous for saying, nostalgia is the most toxic impulse. Uh, but but also like if we're going to like build a coherent uh, cinematic universe or whatever like it th- it would make sense for like important historical episodes of the past to come up occasionally in disco and have them not just be from one series given that they're now so far in the future that right makes sense. exactly so uh, uh here's my, my fingers are crossed that they're gonna start to do more of that i think that uh, maybe that's the biggest missed opportunity of season three yeah, like when uh, when Dr. Culber is confronted with Yor and he sees the next generation uniform, he should have been like, whoa, what the <laughs> fuck is that crazy uniform? <laughs> I didn't realize they zipped up in the front at one point. What? That seems very uncomfortable. Like it would give you back problems if you wore it for a long time. <laughs> look at this guy's, look at the, look at the cowl around this guy's head. Clearly it gave him terrible back problems. Right. What he needs is a neck brassiere for for all that weight he's carrying around <laughs> with Velcro straps. Yeah. I've always felt I could use some support. That would have been the most humane way to treat the horrible affliction that Yor was suffering from. I hope he was given the mercy death that uh, that uh, that doctor alluded to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kovic? Kovac? Kovic. Yeah. I hope we find out more about him, too. You were saying that there were people speculating that that was supposed to be Odo, but I, f- I feel like we we would have known by now if that was Odo, right? People hypothesized that it would be Odo, but I think we can say definitively that uh, that's a big no-do. <laughs> yes, we can, Adam. We can absolutely say that. If you're not going to go back for that, I am. Yeah. You going to eat the rest of that joke? We're the kind of podcast partner where uh, one of us, we're both ordering burgers and one of them is like, do you want to share fries? And the other's like, no, I'll just have some of yours. (laughs) It's like, what is the difference? (laughs) That's never happened. No. It would never happen because we are team hashtag two burgers, two fries. Yeah. Two burgers, two fries. There's no other way to do it. You know what? If we wanted to share food, we'd uh, eat with our wives. <laughs> you know what? That's the that's the pained laughter of the truth. Yeah. That's what that sound is. It's a different register. It's a, uh, you know, I order an, an order of fries expecting to eat the fries in that order. I'm, I'm, I'm never a leave some fries standing, you know? I think that's the difference. Yeah. 
you take the paper boat and you tip it up like yeah. like a cereal bowl. You're going to take those crumbs down. I'm not saying that the, there's a value judgment here, but my wife is totally capable of ordering some fries and eating some of them. That's like kind of a superpower on her part, but she kind of projects it onto me and so assumes that if there's a boat of fries, that uh, that there's no way a like rational human would eat, you know, 3000 calories in carbohydrates and friolator fat. I can't judge her too harshly because you know this about me and it's horrified you before. I'm a guy who who will leave a quarter of a drink behind. Oh yeah. If he's uh, if he's if he's done, <laughs> D-U-N done drinking, I'm under no obligation to finish anything. Yeah. It's not how I was raised, Adam. Uh, which is why I'll feel bad if we somehow come to the end of our Star Trek podcasting career and haven't reviewed every single episode of TOS in order yeah. or out of. It's going to happen eventually. Uh, but time for us has a different meaning. Mm-hmm. Much like Carl. <laughs> It's got to run in this one particular way. People ask us if we're going to review every episode and we answer in some fucking riddle. It irritates people. <laughs> yeah. They've got a lot in common with the Guardian of Forever. Yeah. Uh, neither of us have anything in common with Harlan Ellison, uh, the writer of today's episode, a, uh, a person beloved by those who enjoyed his work, uh, but loathed by people who actually had to work with him. Really? A notorious, irascible asshole <laughs> was Harlan Ellison. He, he like got into a, 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 a disagreement with Gene Roddenberry about this episode that like bordered on litigious. Wow. And, uh, and like they, they fought openly about whose story it was. And Harlan Ellison wanted to, uh, wanted to Alan Smithy himself. Damn. on the credit for this because the story was different from the one that he actually wrote and then he went and he like published his own version and no, uh, and like he wanted to sue for royalties for the version that that actually did come out it's it's a huge <laughs> mess but everyone like sort of shrugged their shoulders and was like that's Harlan being Harlan yeah. you know yeah it's okay to be an abusive monster both in public and in private yeah any workplace should tolerate that you do something enough people like, uh, you'll get a free pass for a long time. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That's the message of Harlan Ellison. So, so, Adam, why don't we get into it? It's season one, episode 28. The penultimate episode of season one. <laughs> wow. You said that in such a Chekhovian way. Penultimate. <laughs> uh, it is... Is, is second to last. <laughs> Captain, we have one more episode coming after this one. Uh, uh, season one, episode twenty-eight: The City on the Edge of Forever. Sulu saying that uh, that the helm is sluggish on the entrepreneur uh, because of all the bangers. Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, they're driving through a bunch of bangers in the orbit of this mystery planet. It, it looks fairly uncomfortable. Ripples in time, they say. Yeah, they're driving f- through the ripples. That's- yeah. That's what's doing the bangers. Yeah, it's like in a it's like in a racing game when you are like off the track and it's like, come on, like this car should be able to go over a grassy berm just as well as it can the dirt road that I just drove off of. But no, the mm-hmm. game is slowing me down and the rumble pack is going crazy. Come on. Right. What if your rumble pack could electrocute you? That yeah. is a question that that Sulu might ask. I would hit uh, triangle to reset. Yeah. <laughs> I might want to hook my station to jumper cables and then connect those cables to my nipples. <laughs> he really takes one to the face. It is a fairly exciting effect here that yeah. happens, and it looks plausibly dangerous. It really does. The, bridge. the doctor rushes up to the bridge to provide aid to his fellow crewmen. Uh, doctors prescribe and nurses provide, but uh, in this case, uh, McCoy is does the providing. I'm a doctor, Jim, not a provider. <laughs> That's what he says when he comes onto the bridge. But uh, boy, the, there is a, a, a 
a close-up of Sulu's face uh, in the lap of this yeoman uh, while the doctor is administering some cordrazine that is so beautiful. Like, Sulu's got, like, like purple eyeshadow on. There's some really ridiculous makeup in this episode, but when they're trying to make somebody look good, they make them look so fucking good on this show. I agree. And, I mean, it doesn't just go for, for Sulu. Like, once you get past the the color palette and the lighting of a 1960s television show. Yeah. And you see George Takei's face that close up. Yeah. yeah he's a beautiful man. So as many of them, as many of the actors of this era are. They really, they, they, every ECU, I'm just like, I'm, I'm swooning on this show. You know who doesn't have a great face episode? This episode is DeForest Kelly, who is <laughs> no. who is not given the benefit of a promised filter in any way. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll get to that a little later. McCoy is uh, McCoy's got just the thing to fix Sulu up. It's uh, it's a hit of cordrazine. Yeah. And uh, the thing about cordrazine is that in small doses, it'll give you a nice little buzz. Uh, but any more than that, like if you if you break off more than a quarter of a brownie full of cordrazine, thinking that the first <laughs> quarter didn't hit yet, yeah, oh boy, and that is going to be a night ruiner. Yeah, heaven help you if you uh, if you're half an hour in and wondering why you haven't felt any effects yet, and and double down on what you just had. A lot of people find that the uh, cordrazine brownies are welcome in a party environment, but you need to bring a little a little paper label that calls them the cordrazine brownies <laughs> so that people can tell the difference have i ever told you that story you have okay yeah i i i made a terrible mistake at a holiday party one time not reading the labels on the cookies and uh, i had to place a very embarrassing phone call to my father when i realized that i was about to be so high i couldn't function <laughs> so what happens is McCoy breaks off a quarter piece of brownie, sticks it in Sulu's mouth, and uh, and like grabs his jaw and and does the chewing motion. <laughs> he with works it. it up and down. Sulu comes to okay, and then upon standing up, McCoy falls into an entire plate of brownies when a banger drops on the ship, and like somehow gets four of them in his mouth. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a real uh, like cake in the face at a right. at a rowdy birthday party at a bar kind of moment um, he misses doubtfires the cordrazine <laughs> brownies and then all hell breaks loose because it turns mccoy into a total street fighting man he is a raving crazy person here i wish it gave him super strength though that was what i was missing from this scene yeah the 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 mad bone stuff um Reminded me immediately of Star Trek Three, which is another mm-hmm. time when we get like kind of possessed bones. But um, right. I rewound the scene a couple times because I wondered if I was going to understand what he was talking about. Like he he yeah. yells stuff that is so incoherent, and it really surprised me that a TV show of this era w- uh, just would leave the viewer at sea as badly as this. Um, because it, he is un- incomprehensible. You will get me, murderers, killers. It's it feels like generalized paranoia. Like he's he's fearful of everyone, really. Yeah, he runs off the bridge, and it is uh, smashed a theme. You'd think that they could just like order the turbo lift to like stop in the <laughs> shaft and be like, all right, he's That's, contained. It's great. As long as you make it to the turbo lift, you're home free. <laughs> yeah. The turbo lift is the southern border of Texas or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like McCoy has gotten such a jump on everyone chasing him that Captain Kirk has time to record a log about what's happened to McCoy. <laughs> and he updates us on the on the status of, of the search for him. Uh, they haven't been able to find him. And McCoy is kind of slinking around the ship finally uh, entering the, the transporter room and this poor transporter chief uh, gets totally overrun by <laughs> you know McCoy. What, you know what it is, Adam? It's not that he gets super strength, but he is, he does have like solid snake level sneaking capabilities. 
Yeah, this transporter app never turns to exclamation point above his head <laughs> no. at any point. It, he goes question mark and that's it. He seems totally unsuspicious of the large box that keeps getting closer and closer to him every time he turns around. I put this on Kirk. I think as soon as McCoy escapes the bridge, a message to the crew may be a good idea. <laughs> Maybe lock the exits to the ship. And, and I think... By exit, I mean the transporter room qualifies. Yeah, like lock down the shuttle bay in the transporter room is a good first step if you don't have the technology of computer to locate Dr. McCoy. Right. Uh, And so this guy gets KO'd and McCoy runs the transporter by himself. He does that little remote start thing. You slide the sliders up to the top and then you run to the pad yeah. And you're good to go. And by the time the sliders have fallen back to the bottom, <laughs> you're energized. Yeah. Yeah, McCoy turns up the snare or or whatever <laughs> whatever that is in the EQ gets him <laughs> down to the planet's surface. So this is going to this is going to mean a dustbuster club has to go get him and uh, we get Kirk, Spock, Ahura, uh, Scotty and a couple of red shirts uh, down on the planet's surface and it's sort of a Greco-Roman ruin that Kirk describes as extending to the horizon so that they don't actually have to show it extending to the horizon because this set is about 10 feet by 10 feet. (laughs) Yeah, don't look at the corners of the floor. No. Um, But it's got this uh, this big arch in the middle of it, an arch that is familiar to us as veteran Star Trek viewers who have seen season three of Discovery. It's only now that we can truly appreciate Carl's hole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really like the blocking in this scene because while this is a small, very styrofoamy set, they they like really walk around this uh, Mm -hmm. this hole, and that that blocking really gives you a sense of the scale of it as a as a thing. In a way that I kind of wish they'd done more of in that episode of Discovery, like like when they see that door, like spend more time kind of moving around the space. That's that those scenes in the two episode arc where they got rid of Georgia so she could go be on her own television program um, felt very stagey and very like the camera was on a very like restricted axis. Yeah. But, uh, but as they're walking around exploring the space, uh, we also get bones McCoy solid snaking around hiding behind boulders and, you know, sneaking sneaking past unwitting red shirts. Spock has used his tricorder on Carl's hole and can't really figure out where it's getting its power. It's one of the interesting things about it. Like I like I like science fiction things that aren't future sci-fi looking. Like the the thing about the the thing about Carl's hole that's scary is that it's ancient and asymmetrical. Yeah. Like there's something that those qualities about it are what make people nervous. It's not like we've seen plenty of portals and plenty of Star Trek series that are like glossy and symmetrical. And even like the Stargate was right. very uh, retro futuristic, but it didn't look as dangerous as what this looks like. There's something about its shape that 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 has that effect. I think it's a really well-conceived thing. It's the visual language of magic rather than the visual language of technology. And it's that thing of a sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from. Like, right. this thing is dunking on Spock for his limited ability to articulate scientific ideas right off the bat. And I love that when it starts talking to them, none of them are blown away by the fact that it's a talking Carl's hole also. (laughs) I think that's what it's got to be like to be on Star Trek. Like (laughs) things are going to talk to you and you need to project that that's not a surprise. Yeah. So uh, it activates itself and starts showing them images of the, uh, the ancient past of earth and uh it's a very fun selection of stock images that kind of show the progression of earth history through time as seen by 60s hollywood stock imagery and uh and they 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 get an introduction um they want to call it guardian but it says guardian please guardian was my father's name call me carl 
Behold Carl's Pond 5 stock footage collection. <laughs> Very reasonable prices. Uh, but Bones McCoy jumps through this hole, kind of leaps before he looks. and uh, What the fuck happened with Spock's neck pinch that it didn't take? You, uh, you'd expect McCoy to be down. He's not down. He's so cranked up on trucker speed that it just doesn't work. He he went to Browntown so hard that uh, a neck pitch couldn't take him out. Yeah. So Leonard got super high in a race history. Boner move, Leonard. I love the pace of this moment because McCoy goes in and then Ahura realizes that she can't get the ship on the communicator. And then they quickly realize that they can't get anything on anything. And then Carl's like, yeah, uh, so... <laughs> When that guy jumped through the portal, he kind of changed everything. So... Remember that really sweaty guy from before? So that guy went through my portal and now all my stock footage is ruined. (laughs) Now I don't know how to make my documentary film. Now I'm going to have to use stills and do like Ken Burns effects over everything. I don't know how to to de-interlace this stuff. It's completely (laughs) fucked. Oh, man. (laughs) Do you know a good filter for converting from PAL to NTSC? Increase the contrast so that it matches the rest of your sequence. (laughs) Here's the thing. They're presented with a choice almost immediately, which is we could stick around having been marooned in time, or we can try at the miracle of jumping through the portal and somehow jumping in at the same time that McCoy did, finding him and bringing him out. And when the rest of the away team expresses their concern over the chances of this working, <laughs> like, I love this moment. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's Scotty that does it. He's like, you really think you're going to be able to do this? What happens to us, the people you're leaving behind? Then even finding McCoy would be a miracle. And Kirk is like, uh, you're next up, buddy. You're on deck. Keep jumping. Each of you will have to try it. This window through history is on like a loop. So there's going to be more than one opportunity to like try and nail the moment you jump through to to catch McCoy. And yeah. Spock is like really upset with himself that he didn't record more of it. But he did manage to have his tricorder running when McCoy went through. And... Right. So so he's able to kind of uh, like three, two, one them to jumping through. And what, what he's hoping is that they're, about, they're going to arrive about a week before McCoy arrived. And it, it, what, the, what they arrive in is 1930s New York City, the Depression. They cut out the part where they asked Carl for help to send them back. And Carl was like, no, you do it. <laughs> Spock's like, God damn it. Really? <laughs> you're the most powerful thing I've ever encountered, and you're just not helping us? <laughs> hey, hey, Carl, why don't you shit out Dr. McCoy? <laughs> <laughs> they time it right, I guess, as right as they can. Kirk and Spock go through and, uh, and arrive in 1930s America looking strange because they're wearing Starfleet uniforms. Looking strange because Spock has pointy ears. I had no idea how much of that Data's head was unearthed in San Francisco episode had borrowed from TOS, but this felt so much like that. The like uh, initial problem of like, how are we going to explain our dumb uniforms to these people? Um, It's 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 very funny. Like the the fact that they get into a scrape with the police immediately because they're stealing somebody's laundry off of a of a tenement fire escape. I really like how it opens the world almost immediately too, because they, they run away with these clothes through the streets up and around and down. And so you see like the scope of this lot. It's a ton of fun. You, you see like, you see LA in the background, like, (laughs) like it's very clearly a studio backlot, but it's so much fun. It's fun in the way it's fun. Just like the Pee Wee Herman chase scene at the end of, of big adventure. Like, 
Like yeah. going through all these these spots really uh, makes the world feel fully realized in a fun way. It's also what I think makes this the most expensive original series episode since the pilot. Like this is it. This they threw it a shitload of money at this one and you can kind of see it in the fit and finish. Yeah. It seems like magical luck, right? Spock and Kirk end up in this basement. Uh, they put on these new clothes. What are the chances Kirk shows up in a strange place and meets a super beautiful woman <laughs> almost immediately? <laughs> uh, Joan Collins, like uh, incredibly handsome woman, uh, descends the stairs with like 14 ProMist filters stacked on the end of the lens. <laughs> Unnecessary ProMist filters, Ben. Yeah, they uh, they stole all of the ones that they were going to use for the Leonard McCoy character and, uh, and stacked them up for her. Uh, but she really doesn't need them. No, she descends the stairs and it is, uh, it's, uh, it's an angelic scene. Uh, angelic in more ways than one. She's a sister. She's Sister Edith Keeler. And uh, she's willing to help because she runs the building that they're in. It's uh, it's the 21st Street Mission. Yeah. I don't want to gloss past the w- weird racist moment where they try to explain Spock's existence as his being him being Chinese and the victim of like a farm accident or something. Uh, <laughs> I watched this and I feel like it was played for laughs when this came out, but it is like it is so cringy that it's like almost hard to imagine finding it funny at this point. It's uh, it reads as more awkward than anything. I was uh, honestly like I was grudgingly impressed by Kirk's ability to act on his feet, even if it was in a way that was uh, deeply problematic. It almost like comes full circle and like could be explained away as like Kirk comes from a future where nobody thinks like that. And he's like trying to cast himself into the mind of a 30s person. You know what? That's how I actually read it. I was like, that's sort of how someone in 1930 would talk and the guesses that they would make about a disfigurement. Unfortunately, I think it's like also not that far from how a 60s person <laughs> would. Right. So, yeah, um, that's that's where where the cringe came in for me. But, uh, you know, Spock winds up wearing a beanie cap for most of this episode to conceal his ears, which is a technology he uh, he reprises with a, uh, a headband in uh, one of the later films. Lots of resentment aired by the uh, assembled hobos in the soup kitchen. Yeah. Uh, mostly having to do with Edith Keeler's piano. I think if you have your choice in soup kitchens, probably want to choose the one uh, without the, uh, the hobbyist musician and singer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who runs it. Yeah, she she, uh, she actually runs this mission in partnership with Rolf. Yeah, who just loves loves that out of tune piano. I love how self aware she is. She takes the stage and she's like, "Now I know all you assholes hate it when I play the <laughs> piano, but you're just gonna have to eat it if you want to eat that soup." <laughs> and also, here's some of my strange beliefs about uh, technology and space travel. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I like it. She's like a futurist with I need to speak to the manager hair. <laughs> like she's such a she is such not a stereotype in a way that I really appreciated. And the thing I appreciated most was that she is not there to scold people for being poor. Like this right. this really felt emblematic of the fact that original series Star Trek was made by people who were pinkos and wanted to advance a like communist idealized look at the future in their television program and so she is not up on that stage telling people that they are bad like if she had been up on that stage like telling people that they were bad for being poor i feel like she would have been cast as more of a villain character but because she is a likable love interest with a tragic fate uh you know it is it is just the opposite she is offering a hopeful vision of the future to these people in a way that is uh, very much a mirror of the hopeful vision of the future that Star Trek is trying to offer to the home audience. The scolding only goes one way and it's at her Yeah, by, <laughs> by the people eating the soup. There's a hobo that definitely seems like he's implying that he wishes she would just shut up and have sex with everyone. And Kirk like shuts that guy down 
super hard in a way that I was like, yeah, Kirk. Shut up. That was a good Kirk moment. Yeah. Soup and bread is so good. (laughs) (laughs) I had salad and bread for lunch today, so I'm kind of on the other side of this issue. Man. So good. Later on, uh, Edith asks Kirk if he has a flop for the night. And Kirk isn't sure what that means, but he's pretty sure he'd like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they've managed to uh, admit that they are like petty street crime guys to her and finagle lodging and a job out of it. (laughs) I don't understand what's wrong with the basement. Why not just stay there? They they got to pay for the flop. Yeah, but no, uh, but nothing to flop on in the basement. That's why. Yeah, the basement has that wood furnace, though. That's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, it's nice and cozy down there. So this flop house, I guess that's that's where they are. Spock and Kirk get an apartment in a flop house. Yeah, next door is Elliot Kalin. One floor up is Stu. Uh, across the hallway is Dan McCoy. It's real fun. A fun hangover there. It's a real odd couple situation because Spock's the sort of roommate that leaves his shit all over the place <laughs> and, his, and his dumb fucking hobbies. And Kirk is really the Jack Lemon of the scene, coming back with groceries, uh, wondering what the hell Spock's been up to all day. What Spock's been up to is assembling a computer, uh, which is going to be vital in telling them when and where McCoy is going to appear. This was something that I feel like would be explained in way greater detail in a modern television show. Like, by what mechanic are they able to link his tricorder to the Enterprise computer? Is there still some kind of time tunnel open? Much in the same way that, like, going back out of the portal is given zero explanation. This is just, like, not addressed at all. It's like, if I get enough vacuum tubes and platinum, I can, like, wire something together that will enable me to compare like microfiche from different timelines and we can determine how to like fix the future. I mean, did the exact same thing not happen when data went back to Mark Twain, San Francisco and built his computer? I feel like they, they skipped all that then too. I think data was building like a way to, to open a portal backup though. And this is like to reestablish Wi-Fi, you know, Edith enters after knocking, and I don't fucking get this at all. Like, if you enter after knocking and you're not hearing anything in the second after you knock, it negates the knock. Yeah. You could walk in on anything if you knock and then just walk right in. Well, she it was an emergency at that point. She really had to go to the bathroom. She really had to tell him that she's got some work. Yeah. Which kind of comes as bad news because Spock wants more time to build this computer, but uh, they they need to go get a job that pays twenty cents a week or some shit, <laughs> and so they they put on their overcoats and they and they get to it. Thanks for the job, Edith. I think she was paying them fifteen cents, so this this twenty cents is a is a huge pay raise <laughs> relative to that. And they need the dough. They they need like pounds of platinum. I might go re dirty her basement. Uh, in order to clean it again. <laughs> it just seems like more comfortable work. The pace of this episode is so interesting to me because that opening feels so compressed and like we, like we get into 30s New York so fast and then they're like, great, well, we have a week to hang out, get the lay of the land, meet people, fall in love, like get a job, get an apartment, build a crazy computer. This is great. Like, let's hang out. And it, it suddenly feels like not urgent at all. Spock and Kirk feel very comfortable in their cir- in their circumstances in a way that uh, that permits the idea that they've been there a while and they're going to be okay as long as they can accomplish this mission. But it's like the external forces aren't dangerous to them. Yeah, it almost feels like it would be great for them if McCoy took two or three weeks to show up because it would give them more time to work out exactly what they need to do it would uh it would create more time for kirk to bang edith keeler because (laughs) ben edith keeler must be banged (laughs) as spock says yeah uh they get in trouble with her because spock uh picks a lock and steals some some clockmakers tools 
Um, yeah, he sees like evidently it's it's like a a tag in tag out thing, like <laughs> like with these tools. Yeah. Like, Hobos during the day get access to these tools to to fix their clocks or whatever. <laughs> Literally like a Swiss cuckoo clock <laughs> that these two that these two bows are working on. <laughs> You're not allowed to take the tools out after uh, after seven p.m. Yeah, yeah, that's verboten. So uh, so Spot gets a stern talking to about this, but this is the moment of seduction because uh, because Kirk seduces forgiveness out of Edith in this moment and it's like hey you know Spock's just trying to to do his weird hobby I don't understand it either but uh, if you want to be cool with me you gotta be cool with him how about I walk you home (laughs) and she's like is this basement flooding or is it just me (laughs) yeah yeah they they look down at the floor at the at the slowly rising waters (laughs) (laughs) she kind of calls them on being weirdos here too right yeah because i'm single i'm thin and i'm neat yeah she's uh she's suspecting something about them and their relationship to each other that they aren't quite ready to uh confide is he the captain of that ass (laughs) (laughs) yeah but walk her home he does they jump right to the holding hands fast which i feel like in 1960s television is like seeing a blowjob like (laughs) like wow first walk huh kirk yeah she is uh she is really interested in the mystery that he presents what makes him so different from everyone else and uh, I I really like how much fun he has with this in the in the walking home scene. Like he starts quoting novels that will be published hundreds of years from now, and pointing at the star that that novel came from and stuff. And and you know, like you can really see it from her side as him being having a little fun with the kind of speech she makes before everybody's allowed to dig into their soup, uh, but. <laughs> But it's like real from his perspective. There's sort of a like straitjacket seduction technique happening here. Like they both see the invisible straitjackets on each other, mm-hmm. and that's what causes the attraction. Yeah, they're both into the same weird shit. <laughs> Their Tinder profiles have a lot of uh, similar bullet points. <laughs> so on the tricorder screen, there's a newspaper article about Edith being killed, and it's from the future. But then there's another article in that same series of footage that shows her meeting with the president. And it's like, which is it, Edith? Are you dead or important? This is the only bit of information Spock needs for his hypothesis. And his hypothesis goes like this. Edith Keeler is the focal point that they've been looking for. Like like they describe time as this this waterway with flotsam and jetsam and uh eddy currents and and stuff like that and this is an edith current that has led them (laughs) to this point edith is going to be crucial in like centering both spock and kirk and the eventually going to arrive mccoy right into their place and time and spock asks the essential question like if there's a version like this fork in the time road that on the left side is Edith Keeler dying tragically, and on the right side, Edith Keeler meets the president. Which is the correct road to take that restores their timeline to where the Enterprise is above Carl's hole again? At this point, they don't know. But Spock asks Kirk if it means correcting the timeline to the one that we know and love and came from. Are you going to be ready to sacrifice Edith Keeler? I love that they introduce this tension as early as they do because, you know, like from the moment it's posed, I think anybody that's like read a Robert McKee thing knows that it's going to come down to Edith being sacrificed to save the future. But the idea that it maybe isn't giving you that little little glimmer of hope that maybe she doesn't have to die is so great. And really like it really frames every decision that happens from this point on in the episode. And there's still like, I, I, I think there's like 20 minutes left in the episode. Spock in the interim goes and learns how to drive a car, figuring that he's going to have to be the <laughs> instrument of her death at some point. 
They did not teach vehicular manslaughter at Starfleet Academy, Captain. Therefore, it was prudent to learn it myself. Really fun scene where elsewhere McCoy appears in a sphere of lightning, completely naked and totally fucking ripped. <laughs> yeah, in that in that three point crouch. Uh, yeah, stands up, goes into a uh, motorcycle roadhouse. He finds uh, he finds another hobo drinking milk out of a bottle in the middle of the street, as hobos do in 1930, <laughs> and uh, and says, "I need I need your clothes, your boots." <laughs> And your bottle of milk. <laughs> and uh, the guy takes a long draw off the bottle of milk and blows a puff of it in McCoy's face. Yeah, it spits all that milk in his face. All the other hobos Very messy. cheer. <laughs> this is such a fun DeForest Kelly episode because he goes all the way. He's 10 out of 10 uh, in the cuckoo clock department. Yeah. And uh, and has this interaction with a character named Rodent, which I thought was super fun in the trivia. Rodent, like he at first is bewildered by the sight of McCoy. Yeah. And he's low-key concerned for him in a, oh boy, you had like two brownies, didn't you, buddy? <laughs> I've been there, haven't we all? I, I pre-hated him because I think he's the same guy that was kind of perving on... Ms. Keeler earlier oh, on. Oh no, really? Yeah. You know what? You're right. I'm reading that uh, that Rodent met them in the soup kitchen. So yeah, it is the same guy. Yeah, so so kind of a piece of shit for yeah. the aforementioned comments. Like I don't think he deserves to get vaporized because he doesn't understand the phaser that he's tried to steal off of Bones McCoy, but... You know what's messed up is how easy it is to set a phaser to overload just by hitting one of the two buttons. Yeah, it should it should have said, like, face not recognized. Do you want to try using the pin code? This is exactly how an idiot shoots his dick off by having a gun in his waist. Yeah. Because when that phaser's inside your, your waistband, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Put it away! I have an ancestor, a, a great-grandfather, who was a uh, sheriff's deputy in West Texas who famously shot his butt taking his revolver out one time. It's the only time his service weapon discharged. He shot himself in the butt. <laughs> you never get past that. That really set the tone for my family going forward. <laughs> yeah, really does. I mean, is that why you have the framed picture of him behind you? <laughs> yeah, Viewers of the show will will notice that framed old-timey yeah. picture of a butt that Ben has over his shoulder. Yeah, with a plaque underneath it that says Paterfamilias. <laughs> RSVP rodent. Yeah. Uh, Adam, it's the biggest city in the United States, and Bones McCoy happens to wander into the same mission on 21st Street that... Yeah. Kirk and Spock are in. And there's a bit of a like comedy of errors sequence over the course of the next few scenes where like Bones will be like getting his soup and turn around and go somewhere else. And then Spock will walk in and they'll just miss each other. I really resent so much about this episode, maybe mostly for its depiction of Chekhov's soup. <laughs> you set something in a soup kitchen, Ben? We're expecting to see a giant pot of soup spilled at some point. Oh, that would be tragic for you. You love soup. You'd hate to see it go to waste. Never happens. Yeah. Where's the giant pot? I don't know. Well, Chekhov, not in this episode, so that must be why. So, yeah, it is a, it is a very, like, revolving door situation inside the soup kitchen. McCoy enters, and then Edith leads him to a flop of his own. I don't know why McCoy gets to stay in the soup kitchen and he and she tells Kirk and Spock that they can stay down the street. Yeah. What's that about? I like how she kind of yes-ends his paranoia, though. Like, he's he's still in his, like, the assassins and killers are, are coming to get me. And she says, like, well, you can stay on this cot in the back. They don't They won't find you there. Not trying to, like, disabuse him of his paranoia, but, but rather... Um, you know, just just trying to get him into a safe place and, and like maybe deal with the the confusion later. And this is all happening while Kirk and Spock kind of come to a terrible realization about what is going to have to happen with Edith, because 
they find some Lenny Riefenstahl footage in their library computer. And uh, Spock starts describing a situation where a pacifist movement in the United States further delays the United States entry into the Second World War so much so that the Nazis complete their work on an atom bomb and win the war. And and the culprit uh, that behind this peace movement is none other than Edith. That's right. Because car accident Edith by dying does not live on to create the peace movement that allows the Nazis to win the war if she had lived. Those are the stakes here. Kirk needs to figure out if his love for her is more important than the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. It's tough, right? It's kind of it's kind of a perverse thing because they like the idea of the peace movement, but not if it in, enables the Nazis to win the war and and you know, take over the world with at the tip of an atomic spear. Like it's anti-peace movement and pro-peace movement in the same time moment. Like it's very, it's a very complicated idea. Kirk needs to decide if the tip of his spear is more important than that spear. <laughs> <laughs> and we get like a little, a little precursor to what that could look like because there's a moment where she's like coming down some stairs and like almost eats shit on them and he catches her and Spock is like kind of horrified that that Kirk would uh, would do anything to save her life given what they know I love that. it's so fucked up Spock is like well that would have made it easy I don't I don't know what you were doing back there on the stairwell <laughs> Could have gotten out of this super clean, bub. Yeah. Edith's been taking care of McCoy, and he's been feeling better. Like, with every scene, he feels he's uh, feeling a little bit more coherent. Yeah, they're, they go from an, an eighth pro mist to a quarter pro mist to a yeah. half pro mist on him. He's starting to look, like, almost human. It's such a relief when you come off of the brownies. You think it's never going to end until yeah. it does. He's really David after dentisting for a lot of this episode. Is this going to be forever? And then it's not forever. And uh, like she comes back one morning and he's like just right as rain, like hair combed, like makeup done perfectly. And she's uh, like, oh, what is that smell? And McCoy's <laughs> like, I took the biggest cocaine shit of my life. <laughs> Do not go in there. <laughs> He's like wafting the door onto the onto the latrine. Yeah. Sorry, they don't have fart fans in this era. Very primitive. There's something very familiar with about the way McCoy's talking. This is something that Edith figures out. There may be a connection here yeah. between McCoy and her two new friends. I thought it was interesting that she didn't like name it directly. She she didn't say Kirk or Spock to him. You can't do that. Uh, Harlan would have ruined this story. Yeah. You know what, Adam? Harlan gets the last word. That's what's most important. Right. She's like, it seems like you're going to be okay here with this cot and absolutely nothing else. So <laughs> I'm going to go and see a movie with my new boyfriend. Uh, bye. Kind of thought, you know, if they'd met in different order, Bones would have had a shot with Edith Keeler. Yeah, it really makes you think. Yeah. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. On this date, Kirk and Edith are having a great time. Seems like things are really going places. Makes you wonder if he's going to have it in him to do what needs to be done. But then Edith mentions the name McCoy and all hell breaks loose at this point. Yeah, Kirk, uh, they, they've like just made it across 21st Street and Kirk is yelling back at the mission that... McCoy is in there to Spock. McCoy comes out of the front door. It's a big group hug between the three crew members. And Edith is like coming back across the street to see what this hubbub is all about. She makes the cardinal sin of crossing the street, Adam. She fails to look both ways. What she doesn't see is the, for some reason, threshing machine making its way slowly down the street. Uh <laughs> Who knows what a grain combine is doing uh, on a on a city street in New York? It's yeah. it seems impossible. A guy in like a Teddy mod 
outfit is uh, is driving it and yelling, "Get out of the way! Get out of the way!" <laughs> What's so awful about this scene is like the hopper isn't attached, but yeah. the uh, but the snorkel is. Yeah. And so when Edith gets gets captured in its spinning gears, uh, it just absolutely paints the street and the buildings nearby. This is a scene that was uh, that the Coen brothers memorably paid homage to in Fargo. I love how the scene is blocked because the action is behind you. Yeah. Like you're you're looking at Kirk and McCoy and Spock and and Kirk is holding McCoy back from from going behind the camera to save Edith. It's interesting there's also some like some little pop zooms that seem to be an optical process that they applied to the film in post to like to kind of like amp the uh, emotion of the moment up like the Kirk looking at Edith and realizing what's about to happen to her, her looking at Kirk, not really realizing what's about to happen to her. And it's really intense. Like Bones is really mad at Kirk initially and doesn't, you know, because he just doesn't know the time travel math that they've had to do here. Kirk's like, you think you're mad. My whole life's on that combine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love this interpersonal conflict between them though that that in a second McCoy is like what the fuck man and Kirk is like what the fuck indeed and Spock yeah. is like mm yes what the fuck This is a paradox. Yeah, it really is. Because what Spock saw on his tricorder as one of the paths of Edith's life was her being killed by a by a grain combine, right? And they made it happen. And you wonder, d- did it happen because of they? Was this Carl's plan the entire time? Carl's plan. The episode ends fairly abruptly after this. I was at like the forty-seven minute mark in this episode, and I was like, "Oh shit, is this a double episode? Am I yeah fucking up?" And like, I haven't given myself enough time to prepare for today's episode. Because I could not imagine how they were going to wrap it up in like a minute and a half. But like there's an entire edited out portion where they like, I guess, go get their uniforms and like, you know, I imagine have to clean up the the room that they flopped in and uh, destroy all the computer stuff. They have to flee from the police who want to do a report about the death of a woman in the middle of the street. Yeah, like they just kind of like come skipping through Carl's hole in uniform in the end. And Scotty's like, Captain, you just left. What's going on here? And none, none of that is explained. Like there's no explanation of like where you go to jump back through the portal. Like, is it the boxing poster that Spock and Kirk came out of? Is it the spot that McCoy appeared from? Or, like, do they have to trigger it somehow? It's just very subtly referenced early on. When they go in, it's suggested that Carl's Hole will bring them out if and when they're able to find McCoy. And we never see the actual function of that. Yeah. We never see that far inside Carl's Hole. Yeah. Well, all we get is Carl saying, wasn't that fun? Use me for other weird adventures. And Kirk just going, fuck this guy. Let's get out of here. A very rueful Kirk to credits here at the end. He does not like what's just happened. We just slam up against the end of the episode here. I feel like there is zero denouement. Yeah, because I've got to believe that... uh, Bones and Kirk's relationship is going to be pretty difficult in the short term. (laughs) This feels like that episode of TNG that ends with Counselor Troy telling Jordy that he's going to need years and years of therapy to get over what he just went through. And then the next episode, it's like nothing ever happened. (laughs) A lady I was interested was horribly killed in front of me because you couldn't handle your brownies. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I had to choose between her life and all civilization. So thanks, Bones. It's going to take an incredible amount of fucking to get my way out of this guilt hole. (laughs) 
Did you like this episode, Adam? I loved it. This was uh, this was hard to beat. Really fun, like Twilight Zoney style story, which always appealed to me. Uh, the stakes were extremely high. Uh, it was fun, also for as as dangerous as the story was throughout. Yeah, uh, I really thought it was a a great combination. I I liked it quite a bit, and it. I mean, when people talk about the best episodes of Star Trek, this is always on those lists, The City on the Edge of Forever. And I think it's for good reason. And I'm inclined to agree with anyone who's ever given it that kind of compliment. I I loved it. I really like those funny choices that they make, like the the way they skip through the hole. Like the, the mm-hmm. first time I saw that, I laughed out loud. Like it's 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 not a joke at the expense of the characters. It's It's just... Like, like it's just it's a silly choice do. that is funny and it's mm-hmm. funny to look at. And there are so many moments like that. Like when Sulu comes back from being injured at the beginning and that just like SEG washes over his face. Like, I don't know what possessed George Takei to smile like that, but it's so funny. And it's like, I, I really miss that about old TV. Just making like he com- took the right amount of brownie. That's why he's smiling. Yeah. He's, he's feeling good. He is. He is. He got it right in the numbers. <laughs> it's really good. Um, yeah, I like the episode too. I. Uh, it's such a weird episode, but like weird and good in all the best ways. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. All downhill from here. Watching TOS episodes. I know. <laughs> uh, well, do you want to see if it's uphill to some priority one messages, Adam? I've already started my climb. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our first priority one message is from Aaron, who sent an appropriate message this time. And that message is for Peter. Happy birthday, Peter. COVID sucks, but we're still in love. Unlike us, our favorite Star Trek couples would fail at quarantine. Troy broke all the Horgons and went Major Kira on Riker's pizza oven. <laughs> Culber kept Osiris' mind control device. The shut stame it's up. <laughs> Miles and Keiko. It's so ugly. Wow. Book and Michael stayed together for grudge. Laris and Zaban. Only couple as awesome as us. Wow. Laris and Zaban. Wow. Those are some real uh, couple goals right there. Hell yeah. The very coolest, I would say. Oh man, what what a delightful message! And we actually got it on time. That's one of the real advantages of doing a P one on the Greatest Discovery is that the the calendar is much more flexible. This was uh, yeah. for on or before February eleventh. We nailed it! Happy birthday, Peter! Thanks for the message, Aaron. Our next priority one message here is from Miss Whiskers Tilly, seven of nine, and Bradley Belke and Bree Belke, and it is two. The man we all adore, Card Daddy Bill Tilly. And it is asking for me to do this in a Klingon accent, so... With great honor bestowed, you have aged another year with great honor. Matka! Ashkash! Wakisha! Akanamawak! Mukwanago! Sheboygan! Wawatosa! Kiwani! I thought you'd enjoy hearing these Wisconsin names in the original Klingon. Happy birthday, Bill. Bree. Bree's the best. Damn. I enjoyed hearing those Wisconsin names as well. I didn't realize that the the Klingons had settled Wisconsin in uh, ancient Earth history, but it makes sense. Yeah, really does. (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) I was not aware of that. Uh, that that's awesome. Um, well, thanks to everyone who sent a priority one message. If you'd like to get one on the show, head to maximumfun.org/jumbotron. It's a hundred bucks for a personal message and two hundred for a commercial message, and we sure appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host, and I got to tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I going to have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, 
tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself an Edward Larkin? I don't know how I could give it to anyone but McCoy. He is so hammy in this episode. And it's not in a way that's like distracting or like undercutting the episode. But he just like, like DeForest Kelly chews scenery every time he's on camera. And the unhinged, sweaty, paranoid version of himself that's solid snaking around at the beginning and skipping through time portals is just so so over the top so so such a larkin scale of of acting that uh i uh i have to give it to him i really loved watching him in this episode you know it was more larkin than shimoda because like i'm trying to imagine jim shimoda amped up instead of dialed back like right. jim shimoda was so gentle in his uh in his break, in his psychological break, yeah, that he seemed almost uh, harmless, even though he caused great harm, right? <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I, it can't be anyone besides Leonard McCoy. He's it had to be so much fun for him to do this episode. I've, I've got to assume, yeah, yeah, he rules because so much of so much of what's fun about his character is his restraint, like he he. <laughs> he's restrained against himself he's like there's you can tell there's something boiling in him all the time (laughs) it really is uh good stuff
Uh, so we're going to take next week off. We're going to be going to our every other week schedule with this show. And um, what we've decided to do is our uh, binge watch of Lower Decks is going to, tr- we're going to try and time that to come out a little closer to when season two of Lower Decks is going to air so that uh, it's a little fresher in our minds. And um, and so instead of a binge watch of that as the next episode, uh, what we've decided to do is a, uh, a fun one. We're going to go back and look at all of the Star Trek themed SNL sketches that we can find and review those. So um, I think maybe what we should do is have Bill post the uh, the links to the videos for these on the Greatest Trek social media That's accounts. A good idea. So if yeah. uh, if folks haven't seen all of these, they can go back and watch them. But uh, we're just going to do a little survey of all the times SNL has uh, has done a Star Trek thing and uh, and review these sketches. There are many times they've done a Star Trek thing, and uh, this is a great idea by you to to do an SNL retrospective. I've always loved SNL, yeah, uh, and I'm really excited to dig back into some classic sketches that I've loved from over the years. Yeah, so uh, so thanks for listening, and we're gonna leave it with Robs from here. Thanks, Robs. The greatest discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia, who, if you haven't already, you gotta go subscribe to his YouTube cooking channel. It's terrific! If you're looking for more Trek, why don't you check out The Greatest Generation or discover some of our back catalog in this podcast. It's truly terrific stuff that you don't want to miss. You'll also want to subscribe to our social media handles on Twitter and Instagram. You can find them under Greatest Trek. The accounts are run by Bill Tilly like you heard from Ben and Adam, and we put a lot of substantial stuff in those feeds. They're pretty great. So, Greatest Trek, check it out. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks with a new episode of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.